Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I am your new bub, B, and we're back with another episode of the uh, Quarantine Digital Book Tour. Today I am joined by an author, a playwright, and a game designer uh, who has written things including a delightful-looking Powered by the Apocalypse game called Comrades. But today we're only going to talk about that a little bit because he's also the author of a couple of books called West Side and West Side Saints. West Side Saints is what we're specifically talking about today, which he pitched to us as a, a alternate history jazz age mystery in the most delightfully rhyming fashion. And that author is W.M. Akers. Hello, Will. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's, I'm I'm living right now. Um, I'm actually having a really good day, which is surprising given the times. <laughs> Well, don't take it for granted. I mean, I'm glad to be, uh, you know, recording it so that I will remember in, you know, some point in the future that I had a good day once during COVID <laughs> times. Uh, would you like to sort of introduce yourself and talk about the book a little bit? Yeah. So uh, my name is W. Makers. In real life, people call me Will because W.M. is actually more syllables than Will. Um, I uh, am a writer. I'm used to saying that I'm a New York writer, but just over a year ago, my family and I moved to Philadelphia, so I spent the last year uh, getting to know Philly, which is a city that I've come to really, really love. Um, it was, you know, really having fun exploring before world events sort of forced me to spend the, what, three, four months now? Um, basically just trapped on my block. Luckily, it's a nice block. I like it. Um, and pretty much everything I do, um, you know, whether it's in game design or in the newsletter that I write or in the books that I write, uh, is sort of tied together by this idea of giving people an opportunity to reimagine or like go uh, re reinvent history for themselves um in such a way that like you know it feels more like appealing to them or just really just to give people like other routes into learning about history because i love history um it's sort of been my passion ever since i was a kid and um everything i do is just about like kind of digging up weird old forgotten things and then twisting them in such a way that they seem surprising or new or like relevant to people in modern day. So the this book series, West Side is the first one, West Side Saints is the second one. They're alternate universe mystery novels set in 1921, well in this book 1922, New York City, um, a version of New York where the entire west side of Manhattan, everything west of Broadway, is totally overgrown and deserted and strange and overrun with like weird unknown magic. Um, and our hero is a young woman named Gilda Carr, who's a detective who specializes in tiny mysteries, because in her neighborhood, the mysteries larger than that tend to be really, really terrifying and horrible. So she sort of focuses on like, you know, what happened to my shoe? Why is my dog being weird? Like, what is that odd smell in my building? And that's sort of the things that she likes to preoccupy herself with. And then in the novels, she tends to stumble on larger stuff. Are you so do you have plans for a uh, like a short story collection where you just focus on tiny mysteries? Because I would read the shit out of that. <laughs> you know, it's something I've kicked around a lot. I've actually written a couple of them, um, which I'd be happy to share with you. And you can uh, send them out to your listeners because they're, they're something I've passed around for free online. And it, yeah, in, in my head, I would love to to write more of them because they're really, really fun. And short stories are a thing that I haven't written much in a long time. And it's been interesting kind of getting back into a form that like sort of terrifies me. I'm like, fairly comfortable working with like an 88,000 word novel. But when you only have a few thousand words or less to say everything you have to, it's like, I don't know, the pressure's on. Um, and so it's been fun uh, sort of forcing myself to grapple with like a form that I am genuinely a little bit afraid of. That's interesting. I kind of figured it was it might have been a, a publishing issue. Because I know, I mean, their short story collections come out, but, you know, as a bookseller, I, guess mm -hmm. I know how hard they are to sell. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and my, my, my publisher, 
uh, I wrote a couple of these uh, in the winter after first checking to make sure that like legally I was allowed to. And they were like, yeah, this is great. If, if you're okay with giving them away for free, we'll send them out to like pre-order people as like a special. Mm. Um, so at some point they might be collected and that would be a different thing. But at the moment, they're just sort of short stories floating around on the internet. That's rad. <laughs> um, so to give everybody sort of a taste, would you would you be interested in doing a quick reading for us? Absolutely. So this is from the very first chapter of West Side Saints. Um, and this gets into uh, one of the tiny mysteries that Gilda is preoccupied with at the start of this story, which takes place um, in a very cold night um, at the beginning of a really, really horrible winter of 1922, while she's hanging out on this third floor bar that's got like no wall, and they're looking down at the fence that runs right at the middle of Broadway, dividing the city. Yes. So she's talking to her client. Enoch was at least a decade older than me, but there was something boyish about him. He reminded me of the sort of boy I met too few of as a young girl, who were too tongue-tied and pathetic to ever seem a threat. I often saw him on cold mornings, pushing a soup cart down snowy streets, waking those who had passed out on the sidewalk, helping them get warm and get home. He ordered them about with the precision of a drill sergeant, an attitude that would have been irritating if it hadn't saved lives. A few years prior, my father had often been one of those woken on Enoch's morning rounds, and I had been deeply fond of this dull, middle-aged man and his rowdy sister ever since. The business with the blue ink had started in late November, on what must have been our last tolerably warm day, when Enoch found me on my stoop, pelting rocks at pigeons, and watching night sweep over Washington Square. He was silent until I asked him to sit down, and then he pointed past the bare trees that filled the park to the clean, pale eastern sky. That blue, he said. You only get it at this hour, when the sun is sinking and the shadows are long and day is just clinging on. It's my favorite color in the world. It's good enough. I have dreams in that color. Dreams of hell. Not nightmares. I've had them my whole life. My father used to preach about the blue flames of hell, and I've decided I'd like to do a tract in his honor, with three-color printing, that shows damnation as only he could paint it. He slid a pile of meticulously printed religious blather, eight pages long and printed in black, white, and a different shade of blue. And no matter how many different blues you try, none of them hits the mark, I said. How did you know? I know the look, that special brand of misery that comes from trying to make the real world line up with something perfect in your head. And these are the cases, the tiny mysteries that are your specialty? I was wary. This is the type of thing I would usually turn down. It was tiny, sure, but it was also impossible. Enoch had standards. You could tell just by looking at his perfect little tracts. And that was hell in a client. But that fall I needed work in every way a woman can. I'll turn the city upside down until you have the blue you want, I said, as long as you can tell me what's so special about this shade. I chucked another rock, missing the bird badly, and he told me a story about a little boy who grew up in the heart of Lower Manhattan, long before a fence divided east side from west, the son of a gifted preacher who loved his children but loved his ministry more. Even when we did get Papa to ourselves, he never, we never got to be alone with him, he said, except for one afternoon when he took me to see the carriage parade in Central Park. Afterward, we walked the length of it. I was watching the sun set over the lake when he told me to turn around and look east instead. He died soon after. My whole life, that blue has stayed in my heart. And so that's what Gilda starts off looking for is a particular shade of blue. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, I, I like that you, you brought up Enoch because I think that gets to a good, uh, a good first question. Um, the sort of principal players of West Side, the first novel, are uh, a collection of gangs, basically, who all sort of have relationships with each other. Some are on the West Side, some are on the East Side, some are on the Upper West Side. And it sort of like maps out the city a little bit with those territories, basically. Mm -hmm. West Side Saints doesn't have so much of that. It's a lot more focused on a, like a particular religious family of whom Enoch is a member. And I was just wondering, like, without getting into spoilery stuff, what was the sort of impulse to switch from like more more territory stuff to like a more focused like family issue in terms of 
not the main character because family stuff is weaved throughout both books. That's a good question. So with so one of the things I love about West Side is it, it's a really big novel. There's uh, like, you know, all sorts of like tensions that are spread like all over the city. Um, there's like some great big fights and like, uh, you know, the city is like verging on civil war at places. And all of that stuff is really, really fun. Um, but by the end of it, I was like, I want to do something that's a little bit smaller, a little bit more tightly focused. Um, partly because just like keeping the whole map of the city and like all these shifting alliances and everything in my head was uh, very difficult. And so I thought, you know, I knew it would present its own challenges to like zoom in and like really focus on just like a small group. Um, but it was it was sort of a relief to be able to just like sit down and really, really get to know um five or six new people um, and and also just to keep the the story sort of geographically contained um, the first book takes place really all over New York City um, the second book is almost entirely in like a very very small patch around Washington Square um, dipping down toward what we call Soho and then a little bit on the east side a little bit a little bit farther west um, but it's like pretty much it's just like tight it's contained um, and that was partly just uh, in order to like break up the rhythm from the first book, but also because it really did seem like a relief to just like drill down and yeah. really, really focus. It does feel a bit like a, a second book in a trilogy. I don't know if that's like a thing you're planning on or talking about or anything, but I feel like that's the that's the move, right? Is to sort of establish the world and then drill down and then open back up at the end. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, yeah, so I'm, I'm currently working on a third book, which is slated to be published in 2022. So not for a while, which is good because I'm not done writing it yet. <laughs> um, and, uh, hopefully there will be more after that. I'm right at the moment. I'm not thinking of it as a trilogy. Cause I like, I've been thinking of it as, you know, like a detective series and those can go on as long as there are mysteries. Um, right. Right. But, uh, it, it has been fun with each one to like, think about like what part of town am I in? And, and actually the third one, I, I, I zoom in even farther and it all takes place. Um, within a strip of like eight blocks oh yeah interesting <laughs> yeah so then you know if i get to do a book four maybe that one will go big again i like that idea <laughs> or maybe just continue drilling down all the way until you're yeah, like i mean i i would I, I would i would do one that's just set in in, in a single apartment building because you know anybody who lives in the city they know that uh, you can have plenty of mystery in just one block I don't know if anyone saw this movie, but there was a movie that came out at, i don't remember if it was last year or a couple of years ago called hotel artemis i heard about it but i i since I had kids, I see new movies almost never. Yeah, it's it's probably not really worth watching, but <laughs> kind of, I mean, I kind of liked it a lot. It's probably really problematic, honestly, now that I'm like thinking back on it. I would like to see that quote on the poster. Yeah. It's kind of not really wa worth watching, but I sort of liked it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel that way about a lot of things, honestly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just uh, glanced down at the PDF of uh, West Side and saw that I had highlighted just two words, <laughs> cops lie, um, which is a very good line in that book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and accurate in 1921 or any other time. Yes. Um, and a thing that people need to learn sometimes. Oh, but I, I was thinking also of um, sort of the difference between West Side and West Side Saints, actually, or how you describe them as, you know, big versus uh, like, or like keeping everything in your head in terms of what's moving around was a very um, reminiscent of two different styles of GMing I've done in tabletop role playing. Oh, yeah. Um, where, you know, you play the game where you're like, you have a bunch of fronts or I think that's the uh, dungeon world term. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like making sure to map out what's happening off screen constantly and um, using that to introduce new threats like whenever somebody fails a role versus the game that is like, oh, I have these players for like three sessions. 
we are going to just hit a really a couple of really hard story beats and see what they want and then we'll wrap this up but you you talked to me in email very very briefly a minute ago about a minute ago <laughs> a day ago i think it was earlier today but who's keeping track uh yeah that's like a year and a half ago probably right <laughs> <laughs> about how uh uh gming call of cthulhu helped you fi- learn how to finish a book which is really fascinating to me because I often think of GMing as the worst way to finish anything because everything just goes on forever. <laughs> well, that so you know it depends on how you're thinking of it. I started writing Westside originally in I think 2014, and I worked on it for a long time, and then uh, not that I no, I worked on it for a little while, and I was just sort of like banging through a first draft, and I kind of I had a vague idea of what was going to happen, but I didn't really know what was going on, and the story just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and there kept being like more and more people, and I got to a place, a scene where like Gilda opened a closet door, and there was like a bomb in the closet and I stopped writing because I was like I have no idea why there's a bomb in this closet who put it there I'm clearly just like throwing stuff at the wall and hoping that it makes sense um and I stalled out for like nine months and during that period I started running games regularly for the first time and I started running a lot of Call of Cthulhu and the thing that I learned that you have to know for like running I think any session of any RPG whether it's you know a one shot or like a long campaign is what does the bad guy want Mm -hmm. how are they trying to get it and what's going to happen if the heroes do nothing and you were talking about fronts in um dungeon world or in any like pbta game and that's exactly how they work is first you map out like what will what will happen in like say eight steps if the heroes do nothing and you know that's how the front advances in each session and once i sort of like grokked that and was like okay you really really have to know the hero as well as or you have to know the villain as well as you know your hero you really have to understand the story from both sides knowing that and understanding that because you know you need it to make your session work um because if your session doesn't work your your players are right there being disappointed yeah um and once i understood that i was like okay i really need to go through and get the hang of all of these villains i need to know exactly what the plot is um like the villain's plot that i could write it down in two or three sentences and what will happen if our hero just stands still um and until i got that like i think it would have been impossible for me to finish the book yeah I was I was also just flipping through your your RPG comrades and I believe it's in the GM section of the game. You talk about how Powered by the Apocalypse is specifically kind of well suited for a, a revolutionary role playing game because of the insistence it has on uh, collaborative storytelling, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder is that like is that a lesson also useful for writing fiction in terms of like you know obviously they're not real people that you're writing, but um, sort of like letting the letting the characters you have created speak back to you and like tell you their desires is that like a is that a useful way to think about things or am I just repeating the like uh, obfuscatory myth that writers are magic because of muses or whatever. <laughs> um. I will say it's um it's an extremely useful lesson for writing theater mm. um, because if you go into a theater setting as a playwright or as any kind of theater artist and are like, I'm going to impose my vision on this, it will be a disaster. Um, and so a, a good director, producer, playwright, or any kind of like theater person um, should be approaching the material the same way that I think a good GM would, where it's like, I'm here to make sure that everybody's having a good time and is able to either make their art or have fun at the table, which I think is a form of art. And like, this is not about me. This is about like the experience. This is about what we're producing. Um, I have not thought about it so hard in terms of fiction because I don't know, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think for me, I'm, uh, I am so lucky if I can hear the, the characters say anything um, that there would never be any question of me not listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, you know, it's like it's I'm very much alone in my room. And if they talk a little bit, I'm writing all of it down and I'm not questioning anything. Right. <laughs> that's that's excellent. I right. I forgot you. You have you have uh, you're an award winning playwright. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I uh, I won. I've won a couple of awards, not in a long time, but I, you get to keep it in your bio forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the one of the one of the few awards I've won was at something called the Bad Theater Festival in New York um, six or seven years ago, where it was like ten minute plays, and everyone won an award. Um, so my, my play won best space opera. Okay. Um, but you know, it counts. It's an award. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know that I've ever even thought of doing a space opera as a, as a drama. <laughs> it was, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send you mine. It's a 10 minutes. It's a, it's a ton of fun. It's about, um, a person and their Android lost in space. Okay. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited for all these gifts you're going to send me. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, the, I got the PDFs just like lying around. If, if you were in Philadelphia, I'd bake you bread too. Oh, I might return the favor, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> have you, have you also been quarantine baking like everybody? I, so I started a sourdough starter back in like, um, November. And how's it going? Is it still cooking? It's seen better days. Uh, there have definitely been, you know, times where I just forgot about her for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was just on the counter and uh, had to clean out some flies. But she is still alive, which is magnificent. And yeah, it's just so buttery and good. And I love baking <laughs> a, a lot. It, it, it's a ton of fun, man. I, I had a sourdough starter once for maybe a month. And I finally decided that like two kids was enough. Right. And I didn't also need the starter to take care of. So I'm, I'm doing yeast baking. But um, yeah, I got when, when quarantine started, I was like, the thing that sends us to the grocery store each week is bread. And so I was like, if I can make our own sandwich bread, then that will save grocery trips. And, you know, at the end of March, that seemed like a life or death matter. And uh, so I got I got the hang of like baking yeasted um, sandwich bread. And I, I do it now like three times a week. It's great. The fuck thing is that we're at the end of June now. And uh, it still really is a life or death matter. But yep. nothing has really been done to change that. <laughs> so... <No. laughs> There is at least now always bread in the store, so I'm now I'm, I'm now less afraid of like going to the store and there not being bread. So that that particular avenue of panic has been closed off, but there's still plenty of other ones. Yeah, the supply chain stuff has 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 equaled out a little bit at least mm-hmm. until we you know until the depression proper hits, I guess. Yep, <laughs> which will be fun. <laughs> um, but speaking of of Philly. Um, I don't know. It sounds like you've been pretty quarantined. I'm I'm wondering if you've been around any of the uh the st- some of the stuff happening in Philly is like genuinely inspiring to me in terms of um Black Lives Matter protest stuff. Um I don't know if you've checked any of that out or if you would want to talk about it on a podcast being released to the public. <laughs> um no, I mean I like there there have been some incredible uh protests and moments in Philadelphia and I was like completely removed from all of it. Um mm-hmm. just because like and, you know, just like in my house watching two kids every day. Um, so I might as well have been, you know, like on the moon, um, even though I was really just like a 10 minute drive away from where most of the like largest protests happened. And they, yeah, there was a lot of stuff where I was like, I was looking at my phone like, man, I wish I was out there. And I was like looking at my kids being like, no, I got to stay here and watch you guys. Yeah. So, but I would do wish I was out there. Darn. Um, so, yeah, so I it, 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 it's one of those weird things where it's like it happened in the city where I live. Um, but it's, a, it's also, it's a city where I'm still like getting my bearings and still like figuring out, uh, my place in it. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a stra- it's strange to have like something global like that happening, like just outside your door. But I just, I feel like no ownership over Philadelphia at all, much less over those kinds of like protests or events. It is a thing that I wish I could have taken part in more directly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just shout out to, uh, I believe there's, they're going by La- Lacune. Um, 
the like homeless led encampment in Philadelphia. And mm. also I think currently while we're recording, there is uh, stuff happening around the Philadelphia housing authority and pushing back against one of the only housing authorities in the country who have private secu- or private cops, basically who can evict people without going to court. And people are like taking houses to uh, house houseless people during a pandemic. Um, yeah. Philly's Philly's dope. <laughs> 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 but that, that aside, we should talk about your book more. <laughs> yeah. I can talk about whatever. <laughs> I okay, so there is a there's a scene in West Side where Gilda believes she has been buried alive, I think is a fair way to say it. Yeah. Or or she's on her way to being buried alive, she thinks. Yeah. She's, she she gets trapped in a coffin and is like assumes that she's on her way to being buried alive. Because you know, what else would you expect? Yeah, and I was, I don't know, for some reason, when I was reading that, I got really fixated on, like, other depictions of being buried alive, because, like, I feel like that's such a, a, a common trope in fiction, mm-hmm. or or rather, it feels like it's a common trope, but I actually don't know that I can think of that many examples, like, aside from Poe and Pretty Little Liars. Um <laughs> I can think of a couple, weirdly, from things that I've read, like, in the last few weeks. Yeah? Um, well, yeah, so I've been on, like, a huge reading binge, um, partly inspired by uh, books that I pulled off y'all's reading list, because it's terrific. Um, so I've been really enjoying, like, buying, buying and just, like, having books to carry around. Well, yeah, because I realized that my, like, my mental health is, like, massively impacted by walking around with my kids with a book in my hand instead of a phone in my hand. Um, because, you know, when you're hanging out with a four-year-old and a two-year-old, there's a lot of time where, like, they're playing, they don't need you, you have to be in the room, um, you're not supposed to take a nap, but, you know, it's, and, and if I'm, if I'm sitting and scrolling through my phone, when they do need me, I'm, like, my mind is just, like, blasted, or I'm bummed out, or whatever, but if I'm there, like, reading a book, I really feel like I'm doing something, and it, it makes me, um, a happier person and a better parent, which is a wonderful sort of combination, but yeah, so I've just been, like, on a tear reading, which has been great, and I, um, I just read Misery by Stephen King, which I had a copy of on my bookshelf, and is an incredibly intense book about being a writer. And there's there's some extremely problematic stuff in there, but also some just like very, very smart writing about writing, which obviously Stephen King knows something about. But inside of that book, the book that the hack writer is writing about his character Misery, the one that he's like writing on uh, Threat of Death by the woman who has taken him prisoner, um, is this sort of like, cheesy Victorian Gothic romance. And a lot of it is reproduced inside of the book. Um, and it's like cheesy and bad, but also like very, very page turner. Cause again, Stephen King, and that includes, um, a really terrifying <laughs> passage about somebody being buried alive. Huh. Um, so that's like King sort of like using that like very Victorian trope. And then, uh, so I finished that and I was like, I need something different. And so I'm, I just grabbed a book, um, off the Philadelphia free library, like EPUB, thing because they have a million epubs that you can just download for free for i think up to a month which is incredible and i'm i grabbed this random book called city of fortune which is a history of venice in like the middle ages because i'm i'm working i'm writing right now and when i'm writing i like to read stuff that is like not at all related to what i'm working on and uh, the books that i write really don't have very much to do about venice in the middle ages and there's this uh, a guy uh, a venice a venetian captain named zeno who is this like larger than life figure who at various times was a smuggler, a priest, a gambler, um, a poet, and as well as like a sea captain. Um, and he at one point was nearly buried alive. He would like, so, like uh, during a siege, like a bunch of rocks fell on him and everybody was like, yeah, he's dead. And they put him <laughs> into a coffin and they were like getting ready to nail it down. Like when his body started twitching underneath the shroud and they were like, oh, he's not dead. 
Um, and then he later went on to save Venice during a war. Damn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those, those are two, two, two like depictions of that that I've encountered like in the last week. But it, it was like a Victorian fixation because it happened a lot. Or I don't know if it actually did happen a lot. I would love to read like statistics about it, but it was like a Victorian preoccupation. You know about how they would like put bells on the graves? Right. Yes. And there would be like a string that would like go down into the coffin, like just in case. And if you were poor, if you couldn't afford a bell, they would just bury you with a crowbar and be like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is like somebody asked me, I think in a panel, they were like, they were asked, they asked me and some of the other writers, like, what's your greatest fear? And I was just like, buried alive. Oh, interesting. End of story. Yeah, absolutely. Is that like, uh, is that corollary to like a general um, claustrophobia or is it just like that specific thing? It's that particular thing. Because I, I, you know, I'm a person ever since I was a kid, like I like cozy spaces. I like, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm not afraid of like being in closed spaces. But um, uh, you know, the idea of like being trapped in a box underground does not appeal to me. Yeah, um, I, I have a yeah. My, my pet phobia is I have a, I have a fear of heights that's um, pretty formidable to the point where like when I see people like in high places on TV, like my palms will start to sweat and like I'll be like, "Don't go out on that balcony. What are you doing on that balcony? It's dangerous out there. Don't go out there." That's my 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 fear of heights is like so ridiculous because it's basically just playground structures like. The top of playground structures terrify the shit out of me, but everything else I'm pretty fine with. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's good, because I, I assume that you don't find yourself on top of a playground structure too, too often. Not often. Yeah, it's it's been a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Although there was a brief period where I was doing a bunch of research on playgrounds and trying to like learn playground theory for some project I was working on that I don't think I ever actually produced anything for. But um, yeah, a few years ago... I was I was doing a lot of playground scouting around uh, the East Bay. Um, a, a friend of mine um, works uh, with the Philadelphia Parks Department and specializes in playground design and construction. Um, and it is so fun going to playgrounds with her because she's, she always sees stuff and she like she like names the company that made that bench and she's just like, oh, I don't like those benches. They pinch like when you sit in this one spot. <laughs> and she's like all oh, these very specific opinions and knowledge about these places that I go all the time just as a parent. That's rad. Yeah, there's like, there's definitely interesting playground theory and just like the history of like the move toward a sort of prefab playgrounds versus mm -hmm. the like reaction to that with a lot of, oh God, what are they calling them? Like playscapes and shit, like they're mm -hmm. natural playgrounds that, you know, you, you find a hill and then you build just like things around that out of dirt. And then you're like, this is a playground now. It's a park. I, I love talking to my friend about these things because she has like very specific like theory or like fiscal practice oriented ideas toward like why this material is good or like why this kind of structure is good. And my approach is always extremely practical. It's just like, she'll say this thing is great because of, you know, like these design elements. And I'll say like, oh, that ladder drives me crazy because my kid can't climb up it and it makes him frustrated and upset or whatever. Right. Um, so it's interesting to see like, like the, the blind spots that, that we both have. Yeah, as as a as a person who was more interested in design, the practical application I could see kind of getting missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you know when you're a parent, like the most important thing about playgrounds is is there some place where I can sit down and still see my kid? Right. Because like, how long can I go between having to stand up? That's like just the whole thing. So some like when I used to live in Brooklyn and surrounded by like some of the just like densest playgrounds in the country. And it was incredible. It's a great place to be a parent of young kids. And some of my favorite ones to take the kids to were on paper, sort of the crummiest or dullest, but it's because they were the easiest ones where you could see your kids um, and where you could just like sit down and drink your like three foot tall iced coffee and like not get up. <laughs> yeah. 
did we go straight from buried alive to playgrounds? Yes, we, we did. did. Um, which I think that's like the normal direction that 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 conversation yeah. will go. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I w- I was thinking about that because I was wondering. You know, I think the um that West Side probably gets a lot of uh, uh city in the city comparisons. Um, I I was just curious. Like, is is there any like um any comps you would make for like West Side Saints specifically? Like things that either inspired it or sort of were rattling around in your head or the the comp that i always make when i'm talking about like you know sort of where the inspiration for this world came from is the book the gangs of new york which is this like very sort of tall tale like history of the new york city underworld as written in the 1920s um and it's just full of these larger than life figures and it always kind of enchanted me and that's like the the vision of new york that i have existing in the west side so it's this sort of like like over-the-top Victorian underworld that exists inside of 1920s New York. The more, you know, say, more recent than in the last hundred years, um, books that were knocking around my head when I was working on West Side and West Side Saints. Uh, did, did you read either of the Claire DeWitt books? I have not. Uh, so if you want to read just like a very cool, like slightly like supernatural feeling or maybe just like a little bit spacey mystery novel, um, the first Claire DeWitt book, Claire DeWitt and the City of the Dead, is one of my favorite mystery novels of the century. It's so good. Um, it was very much like an inspiration for this. And then I think one one of the, the sort of like random like books that I wouldn't have expected to inspire me with West Side Saints um, that I read sometime before starting working on it was The Left Hand of Darkness. Ah. Because um, there's all of that like, incredible just like writing about ice um and cold in that book and that that like all those passages like really really stuck with me and i sort of like looked for a way to like weave in um but the 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 main inspiration for these books is still just like hanging out in the new york times archives um and reading just like weird stories about stuff that happened in there so there 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 are like there are little nuggets of this that i are definitely like lifted from real strange new york times archive stories that i didn't like twisted into stuff in the book rad that's uh i'm glad you you brought up the claire dewitt stuff because i mean as a as a bookseller i get a lot of folks coming in well not coming in at this point but Mm. coming up to the front door and being like i would like to read a mystery can you uh can you uh, recommend any and i'm like no (laughs) i sorry there's one (laughs) on our front table that's new uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man, those, those Claire DeWitt books are great. And um, The Last Good Kiss is a really cool 70s mystery that also is in terms of just like the the world of like PIs who are just like really, really hanging on by their fingertips and are like a total absolute wreck. Mm-hmm. Claire DeWitt and The Last Good Kiss um, are like up there in the pantheon of that for me. Excellent. So sort of similar to the the buried alive question and being vague there there may or may not be some um some time travel involved in west side saints and i was curious about like where do you do you happen to have read a bunch of time travel fiction recently also <laughs> no um but you know it's it's something that i've gotten a kick out of ever since i was a kid i remember when i was like in second grade we had some sort of like creative writing assignment and i wrote like an eight page probably like 10 sentence long book about somebody like going back in time and trying to stop the Lincoln assassination um, that I'd, I'm sure I'd ripped off from like watching something on TV and so so it's like I've always gotten a kick out of those stories like I love the million different um, Star Trek time travel episodes there's a, a great time travel episode of DS9 where Cisco is like in the head of a 1940s pulp writer um, and he's like not sure which reality is real. It's like one of the best episodes of that show ever. So it's 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 something I've always gotten a kick out of. And 
something I probably, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would be like, no, I wouldn't put that in the book. It would be too hard. And for some reason, um, it ended up seeming like a good idea <laughs> um, when beginning this book, mainly mainly because I, it was really important to me. The first book, West Side, is all about like Gilda coming to terms with her dad's death and her mother died when Gilda was much younger, when she was 10. And I was like, well, book one was all about Gilda's dad. I want book two to be about her mom. And so I, I was looking for just like various ways to bring that into it. It's it's interesting because like, yeah, I, I tend to shy away from time travel fiction, but there is definitely something about it that like it immediately poses like an ontological question that you have to answer mm-hmm. to like make it work at all. And yeah, yeah and, that, and that question is how does time work, right? It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, is it a closed loop? Is it a multiverse? Is it et cetera, et cetera? And like, no matter where you land, you are saying something fundamental about the universe you're creating, which I guess is true of a lot of things, but it's it's much clearer in terms of time travel than it is that in choosing that to say that New York City exists in this world or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's because there's like, like sort of, I guess that, yeah, like you said, it's either like, the closed loop or the multiverse are like sort of the two main like schools of thought. And the idea of time as a closed loop appeals more to me as a person who thinks that like, it's very, very difficult to change things, but it's also, it's much, much harder to write something like that. I guess writing about a a multiverse could also become massively difficult in its own way. Um, But this is, this is definitely not a universe where like a single person can go back in time and like change history and make everything great. Right. Um, And so that's, that, that's not what like Gilda is out to do. And I think one of the rules that I set for myself is like, if we are going to do some time travel, which like you said, may or may not happen in this book, I didn't (laughs) want to like do any uh, big like time travel tourism um, and like go to any super famous like moments in the past. Um, We do, we do touch on like one particular historical event that's like known, but it's definitely not like in bold letters in your history book. Right. Um, have you read uh, Time and Again? I have not. I don't, I'm not familiar with that, I don't think. So that, that that's a rare, like, time travel book that I would recommend. It's, it's closer to, like, sort of magic realism, and, but it's about a, a person who is recruited by this government agency to um, engage in this, like, very strange sort of, like, metaphysical time travel experiment that they have going, whereby they have developed a theory that if you dress up in like the costume from the right time period and they're in a space that is exactly like correct for the time period and you yourself know a lot about the time period and you just get into like the correct hypnotic headspace you'll like fall through time Hmm. and so they dress this dude up in like uh victorian era garb and like put him in an apartment in the dakota um and he basically just like thinks really hard about it until he's in the gilded (laughs) age um but it's it's a pretty good book and it it, that that sort of like i think but they they talk about time in that book because he's like aren't I going to break history? And they're like, here's the thing about time. Everybody thinks you're going to go back in time and just like step on something and ruin history. But they, they say like time is basically like a river. Um, if you stick a twig into a river, like it will affect it, but not for very long. And very quickly after that, like the stream of time will resume, which I always thought was sort of a nice, like, like, just like a, like a low key approach to time travel. Um, it's like, you're, you're, you're not going to cause the apocalypse, but also everything doesn't have to fit together. Perfect. Right. It's just like, don't worry about it. Have you, I, I don't know how much of a, a video game person you are, but, um, are you familiar with, or have you played the Kingdom Hearts games? Uh, I, I'm familiar with them. I, I have not played them. I play a lot of video games, but I like have very specific tastes and I play a lot of like simulators and like management games and stuff. Cause I, uh. at some point realized that I, I love video games. I almost never like playing video games with a story in it. Um, I think because I like I do story for a job, and so like I really enjoy games that like let me imagine my own story in my head. So like Crusader Kings is like 
my favorite video game of all time, probably. Totally. That's. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a good choice. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, I, I'm I'm familiar with like the world of Kingdom Hearts, and I know like the the way it looks and everything. It's um. It's uh, I asked. Well, first of all, because I always want to talk to people about Kingdom Hearts. Uh, <laughs> but second of all, because um, I don't know. There's a. Uh, there is time travel in that series also, which is a very specific kind of time travel that I think the the easiest way I've found to explain it is that you can time travel based on identity. Um, so you can like only time travel back to somewhere you have already been and it has to be after your heart and your body have been separated, which lets you then change things actually. I don't know. It's it's a it's another one of those very specific kinds of time mm. travel that isn't quite multiverse or um closed loop theory. But I also thought of it because um the uh fantastical element of West Side it involves a lot of uh of shadows and darkness, um sort of swooping people up, and that is mm-hmm. also a central premise of Kingdom Hearts. Oh, cool. It's like this is or those games are my shit, so um, uh, I, I've played I've played Chrono Trigger several times. Um, ah. So in terms of like you know time traveling video games, that that one has yeah, my heart. That game is excellent, and I should probably replay it because it's been like five years. I, I, I think I, I think I beat it the second time I played it. I don't remember. I think the first time I got stuck, and then the second time I think I managed. But God, I mean, it's a beautiful game. I think about that game a lot, and I haven't played it in forever. So we're we're probably coming up on time. Um, hmm. I guess we haven't really talked at all about Gilda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is interesting. What we've said so far is she's a detective. She has tiny mysteries. The books are about, among other things, her parents. Um, but like, what was what was writing her like? Just a total pleasure. Um, I love I love hanging out with Gilda Carr as much as any other character I've ever created. Maybe more than she. People always ask me like, you know, when you were thinking about West Side, what like what came first, like the world or Gilda? And Gilda was there like absolutely the first thing. Because um, my very first idea was like I will I want to write about a detective who solves tiny mysteries because that that was like a fun idea and I really like the idea of having a detective who when confronted with a dead body would do what I would do which is run the hell away um, <laughs> and would not be like I must look for clues um, so that that was like my the first thing I knew about Gilda was that she uh, has a sensible fear of murder. Um, which I think is, is something lacking in a lot of fictional characters. Um, <laughs> and, and that was, you know, sort of like one of the things that she and I have in common. Um, and then from there, I was like, well, why does she, is she so intensely focused on these tiny mysteries? And it's like, well, it must be because somebody in her past, in her case, her dad was like basically killed by chasing larger mysteries. Um, and so that was sort of like the, the conflict from whence West Side came. And, uh, yeah, so I, I just like, and any anytime I like sit down and start like working on the books again, like she's always right there. Like I just I hear her voice in my head very very clearly. Um, I've said before that when I'm like trying to remember what she sounds like, I imagine Catherine Hepburn with a nasty hangover, um, and that sort of like helps get me into the mood. But yeah, she's she's a total pleasure because she she's uh, the kind of fictional character who is extremely impatient and rude. And those are two things that are wonderful in a fictional character because uh, if you have someone who is patient or polite then they're, they're going to get stonewalled and you'll have scenes that go on forever. Whereas if you have somebody who's not afraid to just like walk up to somebody and like shove them out of the way and then go after what she wants, um, suddenly your, your scene is like 10% as long and you're just like right in the meat of it. And like the story just like goes. Um, and, and she is uh, a total blast to write. And I, I'd like to think it comes out in the book. But that, that is where the propulsive writing comes from, right? Is the, the mixture of, I mean, it comes from obviously you writing things and editing them, but uh, it shows up in the fiction in terms of, Gilda being like, all right, I'm fucking done with these people. I'm going to move on. 
and then being like, oh, wait, but I'm actually a detective, so I do still have to <laughs> investigate this stuff, so I can't just move. I do need to figure out what's going on, but also, fuck this, I'm gonna go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and she also is the kind of character who will just, like, uh, sit at a bar and spit at a fence uh, occasionally. <laughs> which... Yeah, she her manners are terrible, and that's, that's, that's a fun thing. <laughs> um... Yeah, I guess if there's if there's nothing else on top of your head, um, should we go into the final reading? Yeah, I mean, we covered Playgrounds and everything else, so... Right. <laughs> Buried alive to Playgrounds yeah. to Fence Spin. <laughs> um, yeah, so, no, so I will... Uh, so speaking of, like, Gilda has once, a bit, once again been at a bar. Um, this is a little bit farther into West Side Saints. She has been imprisoned in the back room of the bar, given a dog bowl full of red beet-stained gin to drink. Um, she's run into her ex-boyfriend and sort of like closest oldest friend Cherub Stevens um, and the two of them uh, who haven't seen each other in a while have gotten just like blind drunk and passed out on a pile of dirty mattresses like you do. Um, I woke with bile in my mouth warm for the first time in months. Ash burned my eyes and smoke oozed in from under the door. A spike of fear pierced the fog of gin and dreaming. I got to my feet and found I was still deeply drunk. The knob was red hot. The door remained locked. Abner, you bastard, let us out of here, I screamed. No answer came save the gentle crunch of a happily growing fire. My screams had not disturbed sweet cherub, so I kicked him in the side. We have to break the lock, I said. Even drunk, he had the sense to feel his pockets looking for an implement and found nothing. In that moment, I was certain we were going to die. I lifted my empty, beet-stained dog bowl and crashed it down on the doorknob. The bowl shattered, the knob held firm, and I almost gave in to despair. But Cherub grabbed the heaviest chunk of split ceramic and swung it until the knob clattered across the floor. I kicked the door with optimism. It did not budge. Flames spurted through the hole where the doorknob had been. Flames, soft and delicate, and turquoise blue. It began a slow climb along the wood, moving like no fire I'd ever seen. It danced, languid and twisted, spreading like hairline fractures on cracking ice. I've gone mad, said Cherub. So have I. I knelt on the floor, hoping to get a look inside the mechanism of the lock, certain that if I could see it, I could pick it. Through the hole in the door, I caught a view of the rest of the bar, a sight that made me lose hope. The basement club's roof was a sheet of blue fire. It fell to the ground in clumps like wet snow melting from a tree. It reached down like swinging vines, then snapped back up as though it were feeling for something. It was a living thing, a hungry thing, that had swallowed the bar and the walls and anything else in the room unfortunate enough to be made of wood or gin or flesh. At the center of it, enrobed in fire, Abner Bird lurched across the floor. Flames swept down from the ceiling, wrapped around his neck, and pulled. He clawed at them, screaming pitifully as his flesh burned away and banged his bloody stumps on the front door. He pawed at the knob. It did not open. He gave in at last and fell to the floor. We're not getting out that way, I said. Then we're not getting out. I have no interest in dying in this awful bar. I took a breath, trying to think, and quickly wished I had not. I doubled over coughing, landing on a mattress that went squish. As my hand sank into it, I saw a final chance. Trying not to retch, I grabbed one end of the mattress. Cherub took the other. We thrust it against the door. It sagged, but did not fall, and its filthy damp stopped for a moment the flow of smoke. The mattresses, I said. Stack them, now. There were eleven of them, as thick as bricks and just as comfortable. We dragged them into the center of the room, building a pile halfway to the ceiling. You go first, he said. I'll hold it steady. There was no time to argue. I clawed my way to the top of the stack, which sagged and swayed. Cherub handed me the shard of broken dog bowl, and I started to hack at the ceiling. The wood was useless for keeping out the elements, but it held its own against the unremarkable strength of Gilda Carr. 
With the neck of my dress covering my mouth, I tore at the wood, which was soft and rotten, but in no hurry to give. I had barely dented it when the mattress at the door betrayed us and erupted into turquoise fire. Help me, I gasped. But the mattresses, said Cherub, no longer bothering to hide his fear. We'll hold or we'll die. I helped him to the top of our little island. He took a few strong whacks at the wood, opening my dent a bit wider. Fire seeped across the floor, then the walls, and began to tickle the roof. Finally, the mattresses started to burn. I pushed Cherub to his knees and placed my foot in his hands. I put my arms over my head. He stood, shoving me up, using my gin-numb body as a battering ram to bash through the cracking wood. The night air was cold and sweet, perfumed with bonfire. I dragged myself onto what remained of the roof, sat up, and reached back for him. He took my wrist and slipped, pulling me down as the flaming mattresses collapsed under him. I braced my feet against the hole. Climb! I shouted. There's nothing to climb on. His grip slipped again. I grabbed his collar with my other hand. He thrashed, kicking his his legs against empty air, and I pulled with everything I had left. I was too drunk and too tired to let a good friend die. I dragged him an inch onto the roof, just enough that he could get purchase and scramble the rest of the way on his own. I didn't loosen my grip until he tumbled into my arms. He looked like he wanted to kiss me. I didn't feel like wasting time. We ran alongside the burning roof to the edge of the lot. I jumped down the steps to the club's front door. It was red hot and locked from the outside. I kicked at it, but what was the point? It wasn't going to open, and the only man inside was too far gone to save. What the hell just happened? said Cherub. We scrambled across the ice into a night lit up blue, that useless question reverberating across my gin-softened brain. What the hell just happened? What the hell? And that's the end of that chapter. Um, so I actually did think of one more question, if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I did I did sort of notice, um, I feel like West Side Saints is a lot more um, forthcoming about sort of like the ethnicity of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed a lot of characters are explicitly labeled black who are, I think maybe you could assume they were in West Side, but um, weren't explicitly called uh, as such. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering like if that if that was like a, a thing you were you chose to do or just kind of came out that like you were like oh i forgot to actually say that in the previous book or or like what the process was there um yeah so i think that was so it it's a universe that i've always imagined as being fairly diverse because it is like an underworld setting um and so even though it's the 1920s and segregation is very real even in new york city um on this like western half of the island where the, the the social structure has been sort of upended um there are places for people of color to like rise to positions of power in a way that they wouldn't on the east side of the fence um and so you know i sort of like i strove to make the world as diverse as i could in the first book and in the second book i just tried to take that farther and like foreground some of those characters of color more and also i tried to be more conscious about um labeling some white characters as white um right so totally because i'm trying to get away from a problem that like i and many other writers have of like just sort of like naturally assuming that a character is white unless said otherwise um white as default yeah partly because you know if you if you label if if you if you are able to like get away from that then it's easier for the reader to assume like just because this character's skin color wasn't um mentioned like i can imagine them looking how i want i can imagine them looking like me um, and that's that's something that is in, is important to me. So yeah, it's it's obviously like an ongoing effort, and it's a thing I'm trying to to do better at. Yeah, cool. Um, 
So how how is uh, how's the best way for our listeners to support you in terms of, uh, you know, buying the book? Obviously, it's been out, I think, for a few months at this point, right? Uh, yeah, it came out um, the first week of May. Um, yeah, so buy the book, tell your friends to buy a book or buy a copy and throw it at them. Um, mm-hmm. You can also, you can find me on Twitter at Weijum, O-U-I-J-U-M, although since quarantine, I sort of like have completely stopped tweeting about basically anything because there's just like nothing that I want to see on Twitter or talk about on Twitter. You can also just find about my, find out about my work generally at WMAkers.net and it's got links to my newsletter, which I'm trying to find time to revive and, um, you know, my games and anything else you might be interested in. Yeah, um, hit up DriveThruRPG, grab grab a copy of comrades and uh play it on discord with your friends i strongly recommend it It is a very good way to prepare for revolution or just pass the time both of which are um in in dire need like we are in dire need of right now i feel like (laughs) Um, excellent um yeah and there's a cat in my room do you have a cat (laughs) um my roommates do, but I i guess he has been locked in here for the last hour. Okay. But that, that is knowing. the cat that you live with. That's not just like a new cat. This is like a No, baby. yes. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, that has <laughs> happened before. Um, not in my room, but in my house. Birds um, keep flying into our kitchen. I keep going into the kitchen and like a bird will fly in and then like fly out the back door really fast. Oh, yep. I, like good sparrows. For them? Yeah. Well, yeah, they always look like they got caught and then they just like flap around and then like book it out the, out the back door. And it's like, I saw you. I saw you by my sink. <laughs> it's, I'm not used to birds getting into a house and being able to get out. So, I know, like, me that's either. Genuinely impressive. Yeah, yeah we, we really need a screen door. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so you can follow us on Spectology at Spectology Pod on Twitter. Um, I'm freestyling this one because I did not bring up my script. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank you, thank WJ um, for our music, and nobody else. Well, I mean, there's a thanks thanks to a lot of people, like uh, the the people who begun the uh, the Minneapolis uprising, all the people out there doing the work to say fuck this system and make the world a place worth living in, to authors who provide delightful novels of. Of, of tiny mysteries that get much bigger, but not to the other person we usually thank. Um, and is that the end of my spiel? That's the end of my spiel. Thank you, Will. It was a, it was a delight to have <laughs> that you was on. Ton of fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. it.